So thank you, uh, Eric, for taking the time and to, to chat with us today. Um, you know, maybe what we could do to to kick off, um, since there's, there could be parts of our audience that, that maybe are not as well uh, acquainted with you, um, but uh, maybe we could kick off with just a little bit about uh, your background and, and how you got to where you are today. Uh, I'm sure you'll take us on a little bit of a journey through uh, your time as an executive and an investor, and then uh, and then what you're currently doing with Lara Hippo. Sure. I, I don't know how far you want to go back, but let's say, let's go back to just, I'll go back further if you want, but uh, in the 1990s, I was the um, uh, CEO of a company called Zip Davis, and we published all the big computer magazines, so PC Magazine, Computer Shopper, PC Week. We also owned all the big trade shows, like Comtex, Network Plus Interop. We had market research, so we were kind of a full-service media uh, marketing services company that served, exclusively served the technology industry. Mm -hmm. So we thought of ourselves as being in the tech world, and um, uh, we, we, you know, we, as, as I said, we, we uh, organized some of the best conferences in the business, so, but I never went, uh, or no, none of my colleagues ever participated in anything that had to do with media. You know, we never went to media conferences, we didn't know anybody else at um, you know, Condé Nast or Hearst or NBC. Mm -hmm. We were strictly focused on the technology industry and we grew up uh, with the personal computers. So that's why most of our magazines uh, were PC Magazine, PC, uh, PC Week, uh, etc. Um, so it was at, at, a, at a time of uh, tremendous innovation and, and tremendous growth. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, in many ways we were, it was pre-internet, so we were kind of the main conduit uh, for, for product uh, from, from this uh, growing industry to consumers. We ran labs, so we had, a, in fact, we had a big lab right in, in Manhattan at, uh, on Park Avenue and 33rd Street called PC Labs, and we literally had engineers, people in white coats, and we would take in uh, all kinds of products, and we would test them, and we would rate them, and if you got, and it was done editorially, so it was completely independent, um, and if you got a, a PC magazine editor's choice, uh, you can wear off to the races. So among the products that uh, we were the first to pay attention to and to review were kind of the direct mail, the direct um, order uh, computers. Uh, so mm -hmm. Dell, Gateway, uh, companies like that uh, were we really grew because of our, uh, uh, because we gave them you know, we compared them to an IBM computer or an HP or uh, some of the Japanese computers that came uh, afterwards, and we, can, we in many, many times consider them to be superior. Uh, so we give them the uh, PC magazine and it's choice and they kind of took off. And that's how the direct marketing industry uh, really got started. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, and then we grew up with Bill Gates and Steve Jobs. We also published um, uh, the, the main magazines on, in, the, on, in the Mac world. Uh, Mac user and, uh, and Mac Week, um, and then we had uh, PC computing, uh, PC gaming magazine. So we had, we had the whole the whole thing. Um, the, the the when I for, was first CEO, the company belonged to the Ziff family, mm -hmm. and the Ziff the Ziff family decided to sell the business. Uh, so I was tasked with uh, organizing it to to be sold, um, and we sold. The, um, uh, the, the, the bulk, we sold it in bits and pieces, but the bulk of it, at first we sold to a private equity firm, uh, Forceman Lil, mm -hmm. and then shortly, and then um, 
we had sold our trade show business to SoftBank, and SoftBank in, um, in parallel had bought Comdex, so that made sense for them to kind of like have all the trade shows. Postman Little uh, did not care about the trade shows, so we sold them the magazine business some, and some other things. And we all stayed on, and, and then 10 months after that, we sold, uh, the, finally sold the business to SoftBank. So SoftBank owned Ziff Davis, and we put everything back together, all the trade shows, all the magazines, and, and everything. Um, eventually took that business public. We took our uh, internet business, ZDNet, public separately. It was in the, day, the days of the tracking stocks. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the late 1990s, we sold everything off because SoftBank uh, wanted to focus, refocus their efforts on building a broadband, a nationwide broadband network in Japan. And so we repatriated um, the proceeds from most of the holdings that they had in the US. We sold Steve Davis, we sold a lot of our shares in Yahoo, um, E-Trade, a bunch of companies and uh, that served, that helped them build this, this network. When, when, we, um, when we finally sold everything off, I, I joined SoftBank Capital as a general partner and opened the New York office. So now to, just to go back on one point, so when we were about to sell the business to, um, to SoftBank, uh, we were also, as if there was, we were also about to make an investment in Yahoo. So we had, I had struck an agreement with, um, with Jerry, Jerry Yang and, and TK, who was the CEO at the time, uh, that we would invest $5 million, this is way pre-IPO uh, for the company, and, um, and it was a way for us to, uh, to be more intimately involved with this new thing called the web. Um, and it was a way for them to have a, a tech-based a media company uh, kind of helping them out uh, with content and organizing the content and all this. But uh, just as we were about to um, to paper this, uh, this agreement, we sold the business to, uh, to SoftBank. And long story short, um, Masa, Masa Yoshi-san liked Yahoo so much that uh, we struck a deal that we would own a third of Yahoo at the IPO, uh, wh- whatever the price was. It turned out to be $112 million. Um, and then also we struck a deal to start Yahoo Japan, uh, which, which only required, at the end of the day, $2 million in, uh, of investments and became a um, company worth 30, 35 billion dollars. Okay. Um, so that kind of kick-started um, some of the investments uh, that SoftBank uh, was making in the, or started to make in the US. And some of the early investments really came out of the, the deal flow uh, mm-hmm. that was naturally uh, occurring as a result of, of Zip Davis. So uh, companies like US Web, or Yahoo, US Web, GeoCities, and others, um, were, were investments that um, that SoftBank did uh, directly out of their treasury, and then they, f- they formed the SoftBank Technology Ventures Funds. Um, then that became Mobius towards the end of the 1990s, and then so and then I joined. Then I opened the New York office, and eventually I led the Series A in the Huffington Post and met uh, my partners, Kenny Lehrer, his son Ben, um, and we. Uh, I became the CEO. I, be, I liked the company so much that I became the CEO uh, a couple of years before we sold it to AOL. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, we, so at that time, New York was going through um, a, a, a real boom uh, in the in technology startups, um, having to do with 
some some major trends, uh, what we would call the urbanization of tech, where you've seen this. This was the beginning of sort the migration of tech workers from Silicon Valley to San Francisco. Um, suddenly, younger people want to live in a in a dense urban area, and New York is you know the largest urban area in the country, and, and with a lot of different things to do, diversity and whatever you want to do, you can find it in New York. So people li love living here. And it made possible by the fact that technology had gone to the cloud, or was starting to go to the cloud, and that you could have access to the same platform, same tools, same everything that uh, engineers or developers had in Silicon Valley, you could be anywhere in the world. Mm -hmm. So, so um, New York kind of matched the best of both worlds. And, uh, and there was a lot of uh, really exciting activity going on in startups, so we decided to rather, because we're well known in New York, you know, we, we had all these opportunities to invest, rather than do it individually, we grouped our efforts and we started, started uh, kind of a, it was a side project, a, a small fund, mm -hmm. uh, that was, um, it was actually not called, it was called Lehrer Media Ventures, um, and that became our first fund, and it was eight and a half million dollars, and we were acting more like angels, so mm -hmm. we would do 50, 75, maybe the tops, $100,000 investments. And then, so that was 2010, and in 2011, we saw, early in 2011, we sold the African Post, and we decided then to uh, to do this full time. So uh, today we're investing fund five, you know, so, um, so that's kind of the, the quick progression. Okay, that's that's great, very, very helpful. You've, you've obviously yeah. seen a lot. One of the, um, accomplished a lot, um, a, a quick note, some of the, our audience members, folks who read read our blog, are um, families who traditionally have made their wealth in what I'll term old economy businesses. And they've tended to stick more with that line of focus and investing. But when you start to see in the media these big funds, um, such as the SoftBank's latest vision fund, 100 billion, and, and that could be uh, a sequential thing. Um, are, are there, you know, maybe a couple things to point out about, you know, why this is important, um, private investing in technology, why maybe some of these families should consider, um, you know, thinking about these segments of, of the broader economy, um, you know, more so than just your, you know, diversification through public uh, equities or, or, or other similar types of investments that are available. Uh, it, it might be hard to generalize, but, but in essence, all segments of the economy are being affected and disrupted by technology. So it, investing in technology today, I mean, it used to be that you would invest in, you know, uh, a software stack or uh, a modem or, you know, something that was, you, you could recognize, it. So that's technology, I can recognize that. And, um, and we still do that, but, uh, but in many ways, we invest in technology-driven businesses that are disruptors. Uh, so, as an example, so, so half of our company is enterprise software, so um, the, the, the SaaS model uh, is really kind of the, the, the PC of today. So the, the PC, at first, if you remember, pe people thought of the PC as a, as, a, as a consumer product, and it turned out that it was, that what made the PC was a business product, so that people saw in the PC their ability to finally have computing power 
whereby they had to wait in line with their IT department, and if they you know, weren't important uh, or weren't for some reason funded, uh, they would never get anything done. But so they started to bring in these PCs and, and doing you know, uh, tremendous work, and the uh, levels of productivity increased tremendously. And that was a big, big factor, but today, uh, software as a service, the cloud-based uh, services that you can, you can find are disrupting every mode of com computing and giving enormous power of computers. Um, you know, like the, if, if you run on Amazon Web Services, you have on your tablet, on your phone, you have access to a supercomputer that you would never have imagined, NASA wouldn't have imagined having that even 10 years ago. So that's on, on, the, uh, on, the, on the enterprise side. But on the consumer side, uh, technology is driving pretty much anything you can f imagine in terms of in in innovation in sectors like uh, mattresses, uh, eyeglasses, uh, shoes, uh, you name it. So we have a bunch of companies that, um, Warby Parker in eyeglasses, Casper in mattresses, uh, Allbirds in shoes, Glossier in uh, uh, makeup, um, uh, Lawler in uh, women's health products. I mean, they, you name it, they, they, there is a, a technology-driven company or will be a technology-driven company that will completely change the rules of the game. Um, and it will be a direct-to-consumer uh, company that will have a lot of data about their consumers and very, very disruptive, not only to the retailers, because as you can see in New York City, pretty much every retailer just learned today that WeWork is buying uh, the London Taylor yeah. headquarters to make it to their headquarters. So there goes the department store. It's going to be gone. Right. Uh, and, 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 you know, it's going to be very hard to find retailers uh, going forward. But, it's, but obviously it affects the people who pro make the products that sell it to retail. So that's, that's for kind of the retail. You know, but, but anybody who has products that go into distribution, uh, into wholesale, you know, pretty much anybody uh, who's made their family, whose fortune was made in those sectors, in my view, should uh, think about investing in, in disruptors right. in, in their industries because they know their industry and uh, it makes them participate in uh, a lot of wealth creation and they might be able to be helpful too. Right. And w what do you look for when you're, um, I know there's probably a, uh, a long form answer to this, but uh, uh, if we could boil it down to um, you know, when you're deciding on a, a potential investment opportunity or meeting with an entrepreneur or a management team, what are kind of the, the key characteristics that you're, you're looking for? And I guess it could be you know, the, per the person or team themselves and it could also be macro driven or a combination of both? It, it always starts uh, with two things. One is the idea. So does the idea resonate? Does it feel plausible? Does it feel that uh, the, the uh, levels of technology today are able to do what those people want to do? Uh, is there going to be uh, uh, you know, a big market? So it's, it can't be, obviously, we're, we're early stage investors, so we have to invest in big, big ideas. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's that's the first thing. The, the second thing is, which is hard to quantify, but it's really really important is is timing. Um, as an example, uh, in the late '90s, uh, kind of early 2000, late '90s, 
they, there was a number of companies that got funded to do video sharing. And, and they pretty much all uh, disappeared because the projections about uh, uh, broadband adoption in the United States were way, way too optimistic. And it took literally four or five years more. And then eventually, two friends uh, uh, developed an application that became YouTube mm -hmm. to essentially share uh, videos among themselves. It wasn't meant to be commercial, it was just kind of like a, a hack. You know, they were doing that. But it turned out that the timing was perfect because there was now critical mass. They didn't realize that, of course, but there was critical mass in terms of, of broadband deployment and people could easily, or not as easy as today, but you know, can easy, more easily share videos which require a lot of space and a lot of broadband, etc. And that's, that's when YouTube took off. YouTube wasn't the best uh, uh, technology application in that in that field. It just happened to be the, the, the you know the right idea, right time, and the right people. So, so timing is really critical. If you invest too late, you're investing in the me too. So, look at the mattress business, right? So, there's a lot of copy copycats of of, of Casper, you know, direct to consumer mattresses. Um, but most people would be hard pressed to recognize any anyone's name except Casper. Mm -hmm. So. If you invested in the guys behind Casper, you might still be okay, but it would be better to invest in Casper in this case. So too late is also not a good idea. You can't, you know, this 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 comes out of just seeing, you know, we literally see two thousand companies a year. So it comes out of like just seeing a lot of stuff over many years, and then you start to, you know, get, and and we we're not always right. Mm -hmm. But you get to a better sense as to whether the timing could be right. So once you, you know, feel somewhat comfortable that timing is right, then the the main the main focus is going to be on the founders and the people who are uh, going to be, you know, doing the business and who are they and why do they pick what's, you know, what's motivating them, right? Is it is it a visceral, uh, wow, and I know there's a need because I have felt it myself or. or you know, I could see people around me needing something like this. You know, and it's uh, it becomes more of a mission mm -hmm. uh, on their part, and as opposed to people who say, "Well, I, I want to be an entrepreneur, and um, you know, let me survey, let me study a few markets, and I'll come up with some ideas." And I don't really care if it's in healthcare or automobiles, or you know, that we that's that to us is not is not the right founder. We want the founder who is viscerally committed because it's going to be tough and we want someone who's going to be resilient and, um, and not take uh, no right. when it's a challenge. And by the way, it's always, it, unless it's a repeat entrepreneur, we always, we only invest in teams and one of the members of the team has to be an engineer or, or a tech person. So we spend a lot of time figuring out who they are, we vet them through our uh, network <laughs> um, and um, and you know we 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 will pass on on people we don't think will stick around or for whatever reason you know uh, but uh, so uh, and of course we study the, the business plan and we look at the presentation but all of that is more indicative of how they think right. and whether we think that they know how to build a set you know uh, will the margins be sufficient to support uh, an organization and those kinds of things. Um, but we, we're not looking at absolute numbers. These are startups, yeah. right? So um, we're, we're not going to 
go back and say, hey, you told us you were going to do X and you yeah. only did Y and right. bad people or whatever. <laughs> that would not work. Right. A um, couple things. Um, Want to spend a little bit of time talking about direct to consumer? You, you, you mentioned it. You've invested well in that. Um, you know, along those lines, and then media because that's your, um, yeah, I guess, kind of where where you really kind of accelerated right. through. Um, so, the e-commerce. Uh, whenever whenever someone thinks about direct to consumer or e-commerce, they think Amazon, and Amazon obviously is the behemoth. But what some people may fail to recognize is that still that's a small fraction of the overall direct-to-consumer universe where you know you have over a trillion dollars being spent annually uh, online and you know arguably uh, Amazon is 10% or less than 10% of that. Yeah but uh, so to talk about we would never invest in the retail business so if, if, if they're not producing their own brand or if they're not producing their own goods under their own brand we won't invest because that you can't compete with Amazon. Right. If you're just reselling other people's products Amazon will undercut you any day, uh, so what's the point of that? Well, you know, of course, there's yeah. Jet, yeah, um, and good for them. But that they got, they were very fortunate that Walmart, at exactly the right time, needed. I, I would, I would be, I didn't invest in Jet, but I would be shocked if they had predicted that they would sell to Walmart within, you know, two years or whatever. Well, what about what about specialized e-commerce? Meaning, if you have um, the buyer experience is important. And so, um, you know, you have a luxury brand, and they want to control kind of how their brand is perceived. And then that's, you know, a fairly sizable segment of the market. Do you see anything in that area that's interesting, o away from, I guess, the direct-to-consumer experience that is, you know, mass-marketed with, with an Amazon? Is it, are there any kind of innovative things happening outside of that? Well, universe? yeah, the, 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 the direct-to-consumer uh, category has invented uh, in, or reinvented in some cases uh, using technology. For instance, uh, um, well, a, a Stitch Fix is going to go public, right. and we have a company yeah. called Dia, uh, which serves. Uh, it's an apparel company that serves the plus size women marketplace, and that model is you have a box, and you, with data you adjust the product that you send monthly in that box, so that. You're, you're trying to accommodate, you're trying to figure out what's going to be, what's going to please the consumer or the subscriber. And then the, the, that person will try different uh, you know, pieces and will we'll only pay for those that, that he or she keeps mm -hmm. and then send back the rest. That model is, is only made really possible with, with lots of data uh, because just the, the sheer cost of producing that box and, and, and shipping you know, even though the shipping costs aren't that huge, but shipping product that it might, you might not get paid for requires, you know, you need to have good hit rates. You know, you've got to get, people are actually going to like what they have. You can't do this without data. So you, you know, retail store couldn't do that. Right. So that, that's just, a, it, it's probably not, I'm sure that it's a, it's a rehash of some other model that has existed in the past, but it's really made possible because of technology. Yeah, I, you know, it's it's interesting, like, what do Lord & Taylor, for example, they're, you know, obviously hurting a lot of these department stores. Overall, you walk at the malls, traffic is down. Uh, certain malls, that's not every mall. Yeah. But how do those people survive? How does a traditional brick-and-mortar retailer, 
survive? I know that's a different question than, than, well, than the consumer product. Yeah, so a lot of them are, are thinking about this, and we just sold um, um, a, a company called Plated to Albertsons, and Albertsons is the second largest grocer in the United States. Um, I think they have 3,400 stores, they own Safeway, yeah. other, other brands. And uh, so they're, they're thinking through, right? They have this right. huge, and they're very dominant on the west side, west coast, west coast you know, yeah. kind of uh, Rockies and, and mountains and west. And um, so, you know, they're thinking through what do we do? We, we don't want to give up our locations, they're, you know, they're, they're, there's traffic, etc. But, but the locations could also be used as mini warehouses. Uh, they could also be used for home delivery. Uh, particular fresh products. Why you know you, you so so there's there's other things that you can do with your physical location uh, that um, that if you had the data and if you had a direct to consumer offering. Um, so in the case of Plated, um, they could have a a Safeway milk kit, for instance, mm -hmm. that you could either pick up at the store or you can have the store delivered directly to you. Uh, so that's, that is an, an example of how some people are thinking about reinventing. Um, and I think everyone, everyone who has, particularly those people who have chains, uh, you know, like in the food business, um, delivery has become a, a major driver of revenues, yeah. right? Uh, so, uh, so again, uh, single location, it's open to the public, but it's, um, in many ways it acts like a commissary. Um, so, so I, I am actually a big believer, yeah, and, and you, you see some of my companies are going the other way, they're opening stores. Warby Parker has over 20 stores. Allbirds uh, uh, just opened a store right here on, uh, on, on Prince. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, it, there's, a, there's a class of people, category of people who will not buy if they don't touch it, if they don't see it, if they, you know, if they don't uh, you know, get, get the look and feel. So you need to address those people. Now in some cases, like in the case of Bobby Parker, they're not gonna keep inventory in those stores. They, they're gonna be like showrooms and try on whatever glasses, you go, you order them, and they ship them to you so that they don't have those extra costs of, of, of keeping inventory, particularly since they have such a wide range of products. It. it would be difficult. Yeah. Um, switching gears a little bit to, to media, uh, this is a completely different uh, time today than it was when um, you know when you were first maybe starting to uh, talk about computers PCs and and you know all the different type of information that's relevant for for readers um, and now we're kind of all on you know digital uh, media what do you think the game is today uh, you obviously you were at the maybe it was timing it was timing too to, to be in that um, subject matter um, and to be bringing it forth and everything was print copy. Today it's all, you know, digital. I guess what are the uh, strategies for a, a media business if you were to start it, you know, focused on a you know, certain topic, but what are the kind of the key tools to having that be successful today, you know, versus when, it, you know, years ago? Well, today, not only is it very different from years ago, it's, it's actually very different from just a couple of years ago. So everything is changing so rapidly. Um, and, and the differences today are that uh, it's largely driven by distributed content. So it's, it, it would be, I would say, there's always exceptions, but quasi impossible to start a website today. It's like 
say, if somebody came here and said I'm going to launch a magazine, I would laugh at them. <laughs> <laughs> or a cable channel for that matter. Right. Right? right. So, great. You know, good luck. Yeah. Um, so, um, and, and so just in a matter of a few years, the main distribution comes from the social media sites uh, with all the issues and controversies that we are learning about today. But, so that's one. Second thing is uh, that in order to be successful uh, in distributed content, you really have to master video. Uh, video is tough, video is expensive, uh, a lot of organizations are, just don't have that in their DNA and they're right. having a hard time um, moving to video. Video is changing rapidly, so video, uh, you know, some of our BuzzFeed, Dodo, Nowdis, which is a leader in short-form video news on, on the social media, you know, they, they, their formats keep changing depending on what they read in the data. Right, so 15 seconds, 20 seconds, there's a huge difference between you know, someone who will complete the viewing uh, on a 20 second video as opposed to a 15 second video. Now, is it across the board or is it certain types of video? So you have to, you have to constantly read the data and, and then do more of the things that work, do less of the things that don't work. And then you have to have a big experimental um, program, so you have to you have to try two minutes videos. You have to try mini series, uh, and, and maybe every episode is five minutes. Um, you, you, uh, uh, BuzzFeed is doing a morning uh, TV show on Twitter that seems to be doing great. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they, so it, it, whatever exists today is probably unlikely to survive tomorrow. So you constantly have to change, and that is not traditionally the way a media company thinks. A media company is essentially in the business of creating content. And the distribution uh, in the old days, until a few years ago, was very stable, right? Uh, and now it's very unstable. Mm -hmm. um, and so the most successful companies are the ones that are, uh, you know, adapting to, uh, to those changes. And it's, that's why we're well known for our media companies because of the company, you know, Huffington Post, BuzzFeed, Mike, you know, uh, Axios today, which is our latest, our newest, very successful media company, right. which happens to uh, publish in an old format, which is newsletters, electronic newsletters. Uh, so some of the old formats still work for certain applications. In this case, uh, Axios specializes in need to first thing to know in the morning, you know, from the White House and tech and energy, whatever. Um, the, the newsletter is the most efficient way to deliver that to your mailbox, and uh, it's they call it smart brevity, you know, etc. Uh, but they're also going to experiment with video, uh, so it we we are very selective uh, today because it takes a special kind of founder to in the, in the media business to to really embrace this constant change right. that's going on. Right. Um. Maybe just, I really appreciate all the time you've taken. Sure. If I could ask one more, yeah. one more question. Yeah. Um, maybe just what, what's most exciting to you today? Like what, what areas of, um, you know, I know within your, your firm you focus on a specific set of areas, but I guess what, what gets you most excited? What, what uh, technologies, what types of companies? Well, you know, it's, we, we are, obviously we have our points of view, but we are also, the majority by design, the majority of our companies are in New York. Um, so we are kind of representative of what New York is good at, and you know the the the, the four main quadrants that have 
existed in New York since we started to invest are enterprise software, media, direct-to-consumer, e-commerce, yeah. and then generally consumer products, right? That is, we've, uh, in every fund, we found great companies in these four quadrants. And then with every fund, there are over, kind of new trends that some of them uh, either continue on or it's just a moment in time. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we, in the previous fund, we had a nice concentration of companies in the food technology area. We're still very much interested in food. You know, companies like Soylent, uh, right. etc. Um, we're still very much interested in food, but we're not doing as much today because we're not finding as much new companies to, that we like. Today, we, we, we're starting to make investments in robotics. Uh, paradoxically, you know, new, it's interesting that New York uh, is becoming um, not the largest center of innovation in robotics, but a good, good sizable center of innovation. And it's got to do with that robotics, to me, it reminds me of the mainframe days in computing. So pre-PCs, the, 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 it was these mainframes, and there was four basic companies. You had Univac, and Burroughs, and IBM, and whoever else. And um, the, the, the hardware, the computers were massive, and they were very expensive, very hard to program. You needed real specialists to program them. And if you look at the robots today, the ones that, that the most common ones would be the, the robotic arms in the other industry, they manufacture, there's four companies in the world that manufacture those. There's two Japanese companies and two German companies. So very much like the mainframe days. And akin to the mainframe days, these are very expensive. They're upward of $100,000. And they're very difficult to program. They're like, you need some specialists from Germany to come and reprogram your, 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 your robot. But because of the, of the world of 3D printers, uh, and we were early investors in MakerBot, so there are, there's, a, there's a community here in New York uh, um, that grew up um, creating 3D printers. And, and there's a, now a supply chain of uh, components that are really commoditized that can also be utilized for robotics. Mm. So the, the price of robots is massively coming down. And the value, and we were not never hardware investors anyway, because we, we don't really want to be in the hardware business, we want to be in the software business. So the value of these new robots is, is accruing to the software layers. You know, they're building robots that are easy to program, uh, that you as a user can learn how to program. They're based on common technology in the cloud again. Um, and um, so as, a, as an example, we have a company that sells robots to um, uh, automate uh, labs mm. uh, and uh, Stanford has six, MIT has seven, you know, they sell about 25 robots a, a month and they're still a seed level company and each robot is about $5,000 and can do the work of, you know, a couple people basically. So it's not a, you know, in their case they're not trying to replace the workforce, the workforce could be retrained to handle the robots, do other things. It's just that when certain functions, uh, like in the, in the lab work, you st you're moving a lot of liquids from one pipette to another, it's mostly done manually, and the error rate is huge, and that can have you know, massive repercussions. Mm -hmm. So with a robot, you're just, you know, these rote operations can be completely um, you know, made automatic, and 
and that, as I said, the person who used to do that, you can train to handle the robots or whatever. Right. So, but, but here, what we're seeing is the opportunity is that this massive price you know, uh, decrease is, is a major, in our mind, uh, investment opportunity. So that's a trend of the moment. Yeah. Don't know if it's gonna, how long it's going to last, but you know, we're doing that. Right. Fascinating. Um, well, I think that, that about concludes it. Did you have anything, Peter? No. No. It's very helpful. Good. Yeah. Great. Okay. Great. Nice Thanks so much for your time. Yes,